That was a section of Theme 001 from Jamie Branch's Fly or Die, one of my favorite albums of last year. Uh, the band includes Tamika Reed on cello, Jason Ajemian on bass, and Chad Taylor on drums. Uh, this is the Burning Ambulance podcast. I'm Phil Freeman. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you've been with us for a while, welcome back. This is our seventh episode, and I'm going to be talking to cellist Tamika Reed. I've been aware of Tamika Reed's work for a few years, but I really started paying attention to her last year when she showed up on five different albums, all of which I really, really liked. She made a duo record with saxophonist Nick Mazzarella for the Nessa label called Signaling. She was on Jamie Branch's record. She made an album with the string trio Here In Now, which features violinist Maz Swift and bassist Sylvia Bolognese. And she was on two albums by Nicole Mitchell, Mandorla Awakening 2 and Liberation Narratives. I also got to see her perform as a member of the Art Ensemble of Chicago in October. So all of a sudden, you know, she started seeming like someone I should be listening for and listening to. And I started thinking back to other records I'd heard her on, including projects led by drummer Mike Reed, other Nicole Mitchell albums, and some Anthony Braxton ensembles. And I also read a fantastic interview she and Joel Wanick did with cellist Abdul Wadud, who played with Julius Hemphill and Arthur Blythe, among other people. Um, that was published on Point of Departure, so you can find that online. And basically, I just decided I really needed to talk to her because she's clearly doing a ton of really interesting and worthwhile work. But because she's doing a ton of really interesting work, it took about a month, maybe longer, for Tamika to actually have time to talk to me. She was one of the first people I reached out to when this podcast started, actually, but she's just incredibly busy. So anyway, we finally got on the phone in early December, and we had a really good conversation about the cello, about all her various projects, about working with Nicole Mitchell and Mike Reed and Roscoe Mitchell and all these other people about devoting herself full-time to music, and a lot of other subjects as well. So, right now, I'm just going to play a little piece of 17 West, which is the first track from the debut album by the Tamika Reed Quartet. Uh, it's a self-titled album. It came out on Thirsty Ear in 2015. This band features Mary Halverson on guitar, Jason Ajemian again on bass, and Tomas Fujiwara on drums. So listen to that, and then you'll hear my conversation with Tamika Reed.
So uh, what first drew you to the cello, and how old were you when you started playing and stuff like that? I was in fourth grade. I had just started at a French school, um, a French immersion school where you could only speak French, except for in music where you could speak English. Um, mm -hmm. So I was really, I was really excited about music anyway. Like um, I had, I always really loved music. So when we had the opportunity to play an instrument, then um, I was really excited to choose something. I had actually never really heard a cello before. Um, no one in my family was a musician or anything like that. But I remember a friend of mine, like all the girls were picking flute and violin, and we were like, let's play the cello. It was this like big instrument. I thought kids would pick on me less since I was also new at this particular school. That kind of backfired, but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just remember really liking music class too because you know we could speak English and I wouldn't get detention since I didn't know the language at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was your initial exposure to avant-garde jazz, and how did you come to the decision that that, rather than classical music, would be your path? Um, I guess moving to Chicago and learning about the AACM, I started playing with a really great flute player, Nicole Mitchell, and she had me playing in some of her ensembles. And then actually when I think back on it, because we didn't listen to any jazz in my house, but I remember my mom really liking, I guess, what is 20th century classical music or new music, and I think they would have some shows on, like, WPFW, the station that we would listen to sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I guess I must have had that, that those sounds in my ear, just not really thinking about it. And then I also was into, like, a lot of, like, rock band or punk rock bands that use a lot of distortion so I'm just I feel like a lot of people that kind of listen to that music have also gravitated towards avant-garde music maybe because there's a lot of sounds being made as well I don't know but um I, I know just definitely moving to Chicago and just being around that environment um I, I was it wasn't like a conscious choice it was just kind of like that's just the settings I kept finding myself in uh -huh. and at first I I was kind of like what is this but then I started to enjoy it yeah yeah now the cello it seems to me that the cello is an instrument that's easily drowned out in a larger group like when I saw you with the art ensemble and this also happened when I when I watched Oak Young Lee perform at the Whitney Museum with Cecil Taylor um, there were long stretches where I felt like I was seeing you but not hearing you so mm -hmm. how do you overcome that and sort of make your voice vital to the collective sound? I guess I just have to remember to turn up more. <laughs> um, I don't know. I guess it is hard. I mean, I think that's why uh, oftentimes I do play in a lot of strings-focused context um, because it is hard when you have lots of horns and drums um, to kind of come out of that sound. Mm -hmm. But... I don't know. I just you just go for it and you just try to be a part of the of what's happening. Um, I think you can be heard or felt, um, but yeah, it is hard. And you know, you just have to use amplification, I guess. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, for me, it just kind of I'm like, okay, well, if they're gonna be out there like that, then I'm just gonna how out there can I get on my own instrument? You know. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm, it just pushes me to kind of like play stronger or or figure out ways to like get more sound out of my instrument. Yeah, yeah. And Have, just, I don't know. It, it, it makes me think about like what what. Um, what things are going to cut? So it's like I'm going to have to definitely play up in my upper registers because that's going to have to that'll cut. Um, or maybe I have to do different length notes. Like maybe I have to do more like per- be more percussive or something so that it can cut through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I like the challenge because it, it definitely you know it's different than playing in other contests because it makes you figure out how do you get certain sounds out and then you can employ them in other settings that you're in. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where once the music started, you realized that the person who brought you on board hadn't necessarily figured out where you were going to fit in, in terms of, like, the frequency field or whatever? Um, no. Um, what you're asking is, like if somebody assembled an ensemble and wanted a cello but didn't quite know exactly where it was going to fit, you know, between the bass and the guitar or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think I've been in groups where people were experimenting, but I feel like I've always, people have always given me like kind of full autonomy to kind of figure out whatever, and I think that's maybe why I comp the way I do or do certain things, because it's like, okay, well, there's two basses and a cello, or or how am I, what what role, like, no one's ever, like, told me what to do, you know what I mean? Like, they've just been, they've wanted me in their ensemble for whatever reason, and then it's like, yeah, it's like, okay, well, you figure out how to comp, figure out how to be a part of the sound. So in that way, it's been cool because then it's like it forces you to figure out different like voices I guess your instrument can have because you know it's like cello is really versatile it could be a horn you know what I mean it could be like the lead instrument and then it can be a bass and it can be a comping mm-hmm. instrument so when you're in different surroundings it's like if they don't have a specific idea then you can kind of figure out an idea like a pizzicato riff that's like percussive to like I don't know try and get inside the mix of it um, mm-hmm. but yeah I mean I, I feel like people putting the cello in there I don't I feel like they're just putting it in there willy nilly I think they're um, they want the color and maybe there'll be um, a section that's really chaotic but then when there's subtle sections then that's a space that the cello can occupy more easily right right but being in these different situations definitely forces you to think about different ways to you know play in those settings so it's like you think about how to comp more how to um, leave space fill spaces or maybe come up with some I don't know just it forces you to like really to be in the moment really and like think about like well how am I fitting into this thing or how can I make how can I be a part of the tapestry that's being woven here you know does that make sense you know what I mean yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. and that leads me to to my next question actually because you've been around sort of for about 15 years or so at this point like I think the earliest credits that I've seen for you go back to about 2002 but you haven't recorded very much at all as a leader so do you 
prefer to be a member of an ensemble rather than the person out front? Do you feel like that's more fulfilling to you to, you know, to be part of someone else's music well, or what, what's the, what's the story? I guess, I mean, even in 2002, I was just getting into improvisation. So I don't know if it would have been like, I don't know what I would have put out at that time, you know? So it's like, I hadn't been playing in a lot of, um, improvising ensembles. In 2002, I just graduated from grad school um, in classical performance, so I was still trying to figure out, like, you know, I was 24, I don't know how old I was, 24, you know, I was just still figuring out, like, what am I doing, and just trying to play in a lot of different settings, so I just did that for uh, a while, trying to figure out, you know, what this music was, and I think it wasn't until maybe 2008 I think it was that I had my first gig as a leader um, and then I was just you know I was a very shy person so it wasn't it's not, I've never even still it's not like this can reach show you know it's like I really like I do like being a part of an ensemble and I do like writing music um, but it's not like I don't know I don't have this like I have to be the leader like um, <laughs> you know what I mean like I yeah. like I like getting my music heard. I like performing. I love performing. I like, I mean, if leading my own band means that I get to play my own music for people, yeah, I love that. But um, I just like playing music, you know? I just like being a part of something, some musical happening that I think is cool or awesome. Um, whether I'm leading that or not doesn't really matter to me. Mm -hmm. um, I just like... I just, I like playing, so it's just, um, so yeah, I just did that for a while, and then um, being a part of ACM, they did try to encourage me to start my own bands, but um, I think I just felt like I just had, I had more learning to do, I mean, it's probably why I went back and got my doctorate, I started that in 09, just because I wanted to learn more about the music and the, the tradition that I was being a part of. Um, I probably could have done that without school, but it's done now, and I have the paper, so that's what matters. But <laughs> you know, I probably could have just—I mean, as I'm doing, just do listening and read, read books about you know various people and talk to them and play them and try to meet them. Um, you can get that education there. But um, yeah, I just wanted to know more, and then I guess in 12, I did a residency in LA, and so I was like, okay, I really do need to get a record out. And so I spent some time writing music there, and then that's what I ended up recording in 2014. But then I was also trying to figure out who the members of my ensemble were going to be, because at first I was working in a trio setting, then I realized I wanted to add drums, and so then I was trying to figure out personnel. And so that was more solidified in 2014, mm -hmm. and, then mm -hmm. we recorded, and then we recorded that record that year. Yeah, yeah. I think that because because you waited to record, you know, as a leader and stuff like that, like you avoided some of the pitfalls. Like there are, I mean, I'm sure you know this as well. There are a million sort of like albums by like young saxophone players where when you're listening to it, you can literally close your eyes and picture that person's record collection. You know what I mean? Mm. And so I feel... Okay. <laughs> So I feel like you've avoided that by, you know, exploring so many different things before stepping out under your own name. 
Yeah, I guess, yeah, and I, I guess, again, like, fall, falling into the music or even picking the cello, it wasn't, it really wasn't um, all that intentional. It just, it just, I think it just kind of just worked out that way somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even the whole Chicago bit is, like, I remember, you know, my family was on a, we were moving to Fort Worth, Texas when I was in second grade because my mom had gotten into some art school there. And we stopped in Chicago on the train, and I just remember being like, oh, my God, this city is so amazing. And we ended up not staying in Texas and going back to Maryland. But I always was like, oh, my God, I want to go to Chicago. And I told my mom, like, can you go on vacation to Chicago? And she was like, what are you talking about, like, Chicago? And then, you know, after my freshman year of college, my friend was going to Northwestern, and I visited her, and I just remember being like, oh, my gosh, this place was really amazing. I was like, as soon as I graduate, I'm moving here, you know, but I, again, I didn't, I didn't realize how great a decision that was. I mean, for musically for my career, I just was so, something about the city really attracted me. And then when I met um, Nicole in a classical orchestra in 98, I was, it was just, I was, I was just sold on it because in that orchestra, there was like, I think there were like five black people in there including myself, and that was the most black people in the orchestra I'd ever been in in all of my years in orchestra, and I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many black musicians here, like, I just wanted, I just, I was just totally sold on moving to Chicago, and, um, but I didn't really move with the intent of being a part of the avant-garde scene, you know, because I just was very much still trying to learn to play the cello, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Nicole Mitchell, because it seems like two of your strongest and longest running creative relationships are with her and with Mike Reed, both sort of together and separately. So Mm -hmm. you started working with Nicole Mitchell in 98, you said? Well, no, more like in 2000 when I moved there. I just met her in 98 in the orchestra. Mm -hmm. And so what, uh, how did you start working with her and what do you get from her as a leader and sort of what's the nature of your collaboration at this point? Because you've done so many records together, at, you know, by now. Yeah. Um, she's just always been, I mean, I guess she's functioned like a mentor and I would even say like a sister. Um, when I moved to Chicago, I just, I was very green in many ways. And she just kind of looked out for me, I would say. Um, and... Um, I know she said, oh, if you do come to Chicago, we can play music together. But I didn't really know, again, because I didn't know about, I, I just wasn't thinking about it in that way. I didn't really know what she meant. But like, oh, we can play music. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess we can play some music together. But I didn't I didn't know what her relation to the music was. I didn't know exactly what she was doing. So when I came, I definitely was, I sought her out. Um, and then she's like, oh, why don't you come play, you know, play in my band so I was like okay and I had a mentor when I was an undergrad who was like you know never t- when you know when you go out there you know never turn on a gig try and play as many situations as possible and I was like even though I was super shy um, and I actually had really terrible stage fright I was just like okay I'm gonna do it you know <laughs> and, um, so you know she would have me play with her and I didn't know what I was doing I didn't totally understand the music all the time 
I mean, there were times with the velvet, I would literally be crying on stage because I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, why do you want me to make these weird sounds? Like, I've been spending so much time trying to not make these sounds. Um, but she'd always be like, you know, try to just explore your instrument and find your voice. You know, that was, I mean, again, that's the big thing with just jazz in general, but definitely with the AC and the, like, find your own voice, write your own music, you know, create your own original ideas or, you know, create your own thing, you know. So, yeah, I think I would say that she definitely um, fostered that notion or helped me with that. I would say her and Dee Alexander, actually, they both were like, um, she's a really, she's an ACM vocalist, um, mm. and uh, both of them were very like, you know, find your own voice, find your own voice, and it was also impactful because um, I feel like I had a unique experience where my mentors were mostly women, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like a lot of people coming up in the music, they usually have male male elders that they're really surrounding themselves with. And I was around, like, Britt Anderson, but, again, I was very shy. But I, I talked to him closer to, right, I got closer to him before he passed, um, actually. So that was, like, more like 09, 10, and he died in 10. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, they were just very, they were always encouraging you know, even though I, I felt like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> they were just very encouraging and just judgmental, not telling me either way, just like, just keep doing just keep doing it. It was just very like, just keep doing it, just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then playing with Mike, um, it was it was more just playing in his band. Um, he was kind of, didn't tell me either way as well. But they just, we just kept, I think we were all, I mean, I just, when I look back on it, it's like, especially in Mike's band, it's like everybody in that band, I always, I felt like, oh man, everybody's just got it together and I'm just like trying to figure this out. But I think everyone was just trying to figure out, you know, I think that was Mike's, really his first, I don't know, I feel like that was kind of his first real project that he put a lot of effort into, I would say, musically. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I know he had some other projects, but I really feel like Lucifer Family um, was like, a, a, another beginning or maybe a, a beginning for him so you know we were all just kind of figuring out how to be an ensemble just how to I don't know just how, how to create and we were kind of we're, you know we're all pretty much same age group where you know Nikki and P are both 10 and 20 years older than me so it was kind of like I was getting mentorship with them and then I was in Mike's group, we were all more the same age group, you know, within six to eight years of each other, or, or maybe four to eight years of each other. Uh-huh. Um, so it's like we were kind of like applying that other stuff to that. Do you know what I'm trying to say? If that makes sense, you know, yeah, it's like yeah. it's like I'm playing with, you know, in, in, in Nikki's groups and these group, I'm playing with a lot more, a lot older people than me. Whereas that group, it was like we were figuring out our voices together but more in the same demographic yeah so that's so that was um yeah so it was like yeah figuring out stuff amongst your peers so Mm -hmm. that was a that was a really great experience i missed that band actually (laughs) (laughs) and his uh mike's album empathetic parts was that your first time working with roscoe mitchell yes and what was what was your initial impression of him as a collaborator 
trying to think back on that time. I just remember being like, whoa. I just remember that experience. I'm like, whoa, it's Roscoe Mitchell. <laughs> like, I just, I mean, it was just amazing to play with the great. I remember Mike had this greatest idea about us all because we were doing, he was doing the fucking colors and he wanted us each to like wear a different color. <laughs> um, or he had bought us all navy blue chucks or something and we all had to wear these suits. He's in the suits. And I remember I was like, I'm not wearing these pants. Like, can someone make me a skirt? Like, I was just like not wearing this outfit. But, um, yeah, I just remember, uh, yeah, it was just, just hearing Roscoe and just like, you know, you hear it on recordings, but to be, to be next to it, it was just like, whoa. Um, just trying to understand, yeah, again, how I fit in and how to interact with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The three of you, you, Nicole Mitchell, and Mike Reed, all recorded that album Artifacts in 2015, which was like a collection of pieces by AACM members. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you think the status is of the AACM in 2017, because, okay, yes, Braxton and Roscoe are still extremely active, you know, and doing amazing work, but... I wonder how much of a next generation is coming up behind them, you know, people your age or even people younger. I mean, what what is what do you think of it? Is you know, what is the youth side of the AACM? And you know, with jazz, youth is under fifty. Under fifty. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like a lot of the women in the AACM are really taking the lead, like with Nikki and D. Alexander. Um, and I guess myself, um, I feel like, I mean, in Chicago, it's not, it hasn't really been active, active in a couple of years, really since the 50th. I mean, yeah, it hasn't really been active, which is kind of a shame, but mm-hmm. I think it's, people are busy and people have different um, priorities, I guess. Um, and, you know, there's interesting leadership. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, do you think the loss of, of Muhal Richard Abrams is going to create sort of a vacuum in that sense, in the leadership and organizational sense? Well, the New York chapter was very separate from the Chicago chapter, and I haven't really participated that much in the New York chapter. I mean, I'm out here now, but um, I mean, I assume so. I mean, he was just such a he was such a, a mentor to all those guys, and I know that they all feel. I've talked to a few of them, and I know that they all feel the impact of you know it's kind of like their father is gone, you know. Um, but yeah, the New York and the Chicago chapters were kind of separate, so I don't feel like we've had a lot of interaction. Um, and just the Chicago chapter right now is just. Um, it's a little dormant, I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I myself haven't been active in the past couple of years. And actually, for the 50th anniversary, that's actually how the Artifacts Trio came together. Because I'm really grateful that I wasn't able to have the exposure and experience of performing with AACM, with the Great Black Music Ensemble, and working with, you know, you know, Nikki and Dee and Mwata Bowden, who led the um, Great Black Music Ensemble. Mm-hmm. So... And I remember a lot of the 
festivities they were having in 2015, I actually couldn't participate in because I just, I, I, you know, I didn't get the dates in time and blah, blah, blah. So I would, that's, that's really how um, Artifacts Trio started. So I was like, man, I want to do something, you know, to give back or in tribute to, or just to show my appreciation. That's what I mean. Show my appreciation for, you know, what the ACM has given to me and shown me and, um, I was I had come up with like three ideas. One of them didn't happen, but the, the two ideas I had were the Artifacts Trio, and then um, I teach a big band um, at the big the high, high school big band at the Vancouver Jazz Festival. And we for that year, I particularly wanted to do all you know our majority ACM music, mm-hmm. you know, so that the kids. I mean, the kids already had some exposure to ACM, but just because it was the 50th, I really wanted to you know I guess bring it in even more. Um, and then that's when we came up with the idea, oh, well, why don't we do ACM pieces and Artifacts Trio? Yeah, yeah. You know, because it was kind of like, again, it was just like showing our appreciation for, you know, what's been given to us. You know, it's a beautiful legacy, and we just wanted to honor that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, uh, the movie soundtrack for the documentary about the Harry Who and the Chicago Imagists, was that your first official record as a leader? Uh, I guess so, you could say that. Mm-hmm. So how did that project come together? What, uh, you know, how did it come to you? How did you get the job of scoring it and, you know, stuff like that? Um, John Corbett, I guess, had heard some music from this other group I play in called Hearing Now that I co-lead. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I guess they liked what they heard from that and so they approached me about writing music for the soundtrack yeah yeah. and I remember it was like I never saw the film until it was done they had just given me words and I was just to come up with like little vignettes to kind of work with the words and it just I guess it just worked out that they that they worked with the film Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I had never written for film before so I, I had always assumed that you would see the film and then come up with the ideas that way but they just gave me words yeah yeah I'm also curious about the I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly because I don't even know if it's a word uh, the Duope album with Christoph Erb Keith Jackson and Fred Lonberg Holm oh. mm-hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about that project and how would you contrast your style of cello playing with Fred's and how did you two sort of make room for each other and work it out well that just that was just kind of like a random session that happened um i had christoph arab um had come to chicago on a like a swiss grant and i remember he had asked me to play with him i didn't know who he was or anything um and i think i was out of town when the most majority of the time that he was in chicago and he's like, oh, can you come, you know, just do a session? And I was like, oh, okay. And then it was fun. And then uh, then he's like, oh, why don't we do, we'll do a recording session? But I didn't realize it would turn into a record or anything like that. Um, <laughs> so it was just, it was just really happenstance um, or happenstance. Yeah, we just went to the studio and just, re- just recorded it. Oh, and, and actually it's funny because now it's, it's, it's really kind of become urge trio because I think we tried to do a couple tours and Fred wasn't available for either of them. And so that's why it became a, um, a trio. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's why we haven't 
I mean, I think we tried maybe another time to record again, but it's just, it's, it's, it's like one of those things where it's like either I'm in town and Fred's not, or Fred's in town and I'm not, and then Christoph lives in Switzerland, so, um, you know, that's another, another complexity. So, so yeah, that's how that kind of came to be. But I would say that, um, I think me and Fred also have a duo. I feel like he writes, uh, um, I don't know if that's a weird thing to say, but I feel like he writes more melodically than sometimes you hear him. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes up with a lot of really beautiful tunes, actually. Um, but I think, I don't know. What, what it would be, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess I would say that maybe I play more, a little bit more melody, but, but um, he does a lot more electronic stuff than I do, mm-hmm. um, which I think is super, super cool. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We have different styles, but somehow I, I feel like, like in our duo setting, I feel like it works. Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to go back and ask about the, the quartet record on Thirsty Ear, because you were mentioning that earlier. You you said you wrote that music in 2012, basically? Mm-hmm. So the, the compositions, speaking of melody, they feel a lot more sort of melodic and straightforward than some of the other contexts that I've heard you in. So was that your goal for that record, or is that, and is that a side of yourself that you plan to explore more? Or, you know, what's... Uh, like, tell me a yeah, little bit more about that record. It's funny because everybody says that. I, just, I was just in Poland and doing an interview, and someone said the same thing. Like, you do all this free playing, but then you write these songs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Again, it was like my first work. I don't know. I just was writing, I don't know, just music. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I just didn't. I feel I like. I, I mean, I really. I feel like that's something that Thirsty Ear goes for, though in a sense you know not not to the degree that say ECM would want something super pretty but in the sense that they you know Thirsty Ear likes to put out records that have that sort of melodic appeal I feel like okay yeah again and Jason Rebsky is the one that referred me to that label a bass player um, I like in and out so I like that mixture of like the craziness, chaoticness over a foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, when I get the when I think about music that excites me, I, I kind of like that juxtaposition. Or you know, when I hear a great soloist, I mean, I love when they're like maybe something is playing in a groove, but then they like totally abandon that and then come back to it. So I guess I try to write music that reflects that. But I guess yeah, I guess I just I do like even though I, I mean. I love playing in free context and stuff. I I do like melody, and I like dancing, so I like grooves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you? Uh... I have to really think about what to what to say when people ask me that because I just it's funny because I and I get it a lot and I just never really thought about. It. I just was like, oh, I'm gonna write a record. You know, you're gonna write a record, so you write some tunes. You know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Do you have any mm-hmm. plans to reconvene that group? What the quartet? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, is it an oh, is it a working thing or? Oh, oh yeah, we. I mean, we just played. We played Chicago Jazz Festival, Vancouver Jazz Festival, Atlanta, South Eldon. We just came back from Poland. We played in Serbia this year. We Ring, yeah, Ring Ring Festival. Yeah, I mean, it's a working band. Oh, okay. We have work. Yeah, oh, yeah. There are so we few have, of those now that you know. I just have to ask. <laughs> you know. Oh. 
Well, it's funny because some of the labels when I was applying or sending the record out to see if someone would put it out, that's what everyone was like, well, half of you live in Chicago and half of you live in New York. Is this band really going to play? And I was just like, you guys don't know me. Like, of course. I mean, it's my, it's, it's, it's a living. It's my job. You know, as much as, you know, it's a project. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we have, we're, we have gigs in February, uh, April, May, June. Yeah, and I just, as soon as I get this, we just, re- we recorded the, the next record. I just have to get it mixed and mastered, and as soon as that happens, I'm going to try and book some more work for Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had a resident, I did a residency at Roulette this year, and we played at Roulette. We played at Winter Jazz Festival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be at yeah. Winter Jazz Fest this year? Yeah, this year I'll be there with with uh, Nicole. Okay, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also on this year. You're on Jamie Branch's album "Fly or Die," which is actually like one of my favorite records of the year. Had you mm-hmm. uh, had you worked with her much before that? And what was the experience of working on that music and making that album? Um, no, I hadn't worked with her that much. And, um, I just, you know, when I told her I was moving to New York, we just thought we would try and link up and play together. So that's just kind of how that came about. Mm-hmm. 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 And was everything pretty much together when you came on board? I mean, how much, you know, how much do you typically help out or whatever in terms of shaping arrangements and stuff like that when you're in um, a group? She had her own... Co- yeah, she had her own conception for what she wanted in that. So, you know, she had I, she had ideas for, I mean, just little snippets, and she kind of lets you expand upon them. But she had, like, ex- ideas for the riff that she does and for the drum part that she had and kind of what she wanted me and Jamian to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And uh, you also put out the second Here and Now album this year. So... Mm-hmm. That group I read originally had come together for a single performance, right? Like you didn't mm-hmm. know each other; you just were all sort of summoned. So yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it seems like a common theme, you know. It's just like that's just how things have kind of been. Just like it wasn't planned; it was just it just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, how has the development of the relationship then shaped the music over time, like from the first album to the second and to whatever's going to happen next? Um, you mean the musical relationship? Well, I mean, I feel like we've all kind of grown in the band, and I would definitely feel like it was a, again, it's like it wasn't planned. Um, it was kind of a good thing to do before I did my own record as a leader. So it was like I had these, like, not intentional, but these, like, stepping stones, you know, like being in Nikki's band and then getting into this band and not being totally in charge, but learning how to lead or, yeah, learning how to lead, learning how to put gigs, learning how to do a variety of functions so that when I did come, when I did come to my own band, I felt more comfortable fulfilling a lot of different roles, if that makes sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, just us growing as a, um, as, as you know, that was again we didn't know each other, so it's like and we're all coming from different improvising traditions, even though we're all improvisers. Learning how to communicate 
ideas and how to share ideas and how to because I had played with Nikki it was you know it's mostly her music it's all her music and um, the, 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 there wasn't a lot of collaboration necessarily on the composition like again I could come up with my own comp popping ideas I couldn't tell me what to do but it was like it's definitely more collaborative in here and now um, mm-hmm. where we might have ideas about the overall form or structure of the piece, but then we can still like, oh, what do you think if I do this year? What do you, there's, there's more um, opportunity to to speak about more contributions. And again, not that like Nikki or Mike or Dee would shut me down or something if I said something, but it was it's their band, you know what I mean? Whereas this was our band, so we were kind of figuring things out. And so I felt like that was a, I was growing in that type of thing, and then that kind of helped with uh, with the quartet, you know. Yeah. It was a good segue, even though it wasn't intentional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of jazz groups, you know, you're sort of grappling with the language of the piano trio or the trio and a saxophonist or the, you know, the Ornette-style quartet where it's a trumpet and a saxophone, bass and drums, and no no piano, you know, that kind of stuff. You're, you're sort of, when you when you start a new project, you're wrestling with the legacy of everybody that's done that kind of stuff before you so mm-hmm. with something like here and now what's your relationship to the string trio in a sense relationship to the string trio yeah because there's um, string trios in you know in classical music and stuff like that so what's you know how do you sort of work with that language or differentiate yourself from it consciously or unconsciously or whatever, you know what I mean? Oh, I guess I'm not really thinking of the classical string trio. Um, I guess I, I mean, again, we were put together and when I, before I had the quartet, there was a string trio and I was thinking of the string trio of New York, actually. What was that group with uh, Sarone and like Billy Bang, the Revolutionary or what was Revolutionary Ensemble, yeah. Yeah. yeah, revolutionary ensemble. So I was thinking more from that. I, I I don't. I never really thought of a classical string group as a reference for here and now. Ah, okay, okay. Oh yeah. Mm-mm. You had made a couple of records with Roscoe Mitchell, but it still must have been quite a feeling to to be asked to join the art ensemble. So I mean, can you oh, talk yeah. a little bit about that? A little. That's got to be quite a phone call to get. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I, I we got to work with him. I guess doing, like you said, the empathetic parts, and then I guess I was trying to remember it was 09, because I know that we did something with Nikki and Roscoe as well in Sardinia, but I can't remember what year that was. Yeah, and then there was the tribute and, to Fred Anderson, the concert yeah, and that, then was that was recorded. Yeah, and that was totally like, what? <laughs> when I got asked to do that. Yeah, and then I remember, I don't know, I just I just remember him, Just I just love his music, and I remember hearing now was in LA, or we were in California in 2014, and we were staying in the Bay because we were doing, I had booked a little tour for us, and I remember I was like, man, we should go visit Roscoe, like, would that be crazy? Like, we're all the way out here, like, why not, you know? Because that's one of the reasons why I wanted to move to um, New York as well, it's like, I wanted, I want to meet my elders, or the elders in this music, especially before they passed, and I'm still really bummed that um, I didn't really get to hang that much, or speak that much with Muhal. Unfortunately, he made his transition. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's been a thing with me where I'm like, man, you know, I really want to meet my heroes or people that have influenced me or that I listen to musically if it's possible, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's that's why I also did that 
um, you know, we sought out Abdullah Dude because, you know, it's like, man, Billy Bang's gone, and I got to meet him once, but that was in, like, 2001 or something, and I, I just, I, you know, I met him, and I was like, whoa, what is this sound? But I didn't really, again, I was still, like, very at the beginning of all of this, so I just didn't get to, you know, I just hoped one day, I was like, oh, man, I hope one day I maybe I get to play with him, or maybe get to meet him again, talk to him. But then he passed, and Leroy Jenkins passed, and so I was just like, man... We need to find Abdullah too. Luckily, he's still among us, and I got to talk to him. But it, it kind of started this whole thing of like, you know, I want to get to meet, you know, these elders in the music if I can. And so, yeah, when we were in LA, we went and met up with Roscoe and like had lunch and just talked about music and and stuff like that. And um, we've been trying to. But then we were like, man, we should really try to figure out a way to work with them. But you know, that's just an idea. Like you don't. I didn't know if that was really possible. But then I did remember, like, well, this is something we did, but I just didn't know how to really um, see how that... I didn't see... I didn't know how possible that really was. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then, yeah, we did the thing, and they got asked to do the thing with Fred, uh, Fred Anderson tribute in 15, and that was a really positive experience. And, um, and then, yeah, I think that just kind of opened the door for more... for him to ask me to do more, I guess. Because um, that was really, you know, it was well received. And then, yeah, I think it was this year we got to play at Chicago Jazz Festival. Yeah, and he actually asked me to play with the All Ensemble this summer, and I was so bummed because um, here and now already had a gig, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't back out, back out of it. Mm-hmm. I was so bummed because I was like, oh my god, is this really happening? Like what? <laughs> um, then he asked me again if I would do something in London, and then he's like, well, then he extended it to the whole group to here and now as well. So I was just like, man, this is really great. So yeah, it's just been cool to hang out with him more, or to have more opportunities to play with him and, and learn more from him. And I just admire it, it, both him and Braxton. I just admire their spirits to just keep going. It's like they're not thinking of slowing. They, you know, they may be getting older, but they don't. They're not thinking of slowing down one bit. It's like they just have so much. I guess they want to get out that it's just like it's like a hunger for them. You know, which is really motivating and inspiring for me. It's like they're not trying to retire. Like you know what I mean? They're yeah. just, they're trying to. You know, Roscoe always. You know, he's still talking about man. I got to practice and I got to write. And, you know, I got to do all. You know, he's like really still so enthusiastic. Both of them. Um, mm-hmm. So that's really good to see, you know, that like, you know, they've really made a life of music and it's just cool to be, it's just really great to be around that energy. Yeah, yeah. So you think that, I mean, I know Roscoe has been talking about doing stuff for the 50th anniversary of the Art Ensemble in 2019. I mean, are you sort of going to continue to be involved with the group going forward, do you think? Like basically, you know, if he calls, you'll be there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's asked already for some gigs next year, so, um, yeah, whatever. I'm totally down to play. It's fun exploring that their, the repertoire that they have. You know, I know people, you know, I'm always hearing, like, well, it's not really the art ensemble or whatever. And it's like, whatever. <laughs> it's so <laughs> fun. And, and, you know, I think Lester Boy was the one that said, you know, as long as there's one of y'all, there's still the art ensemble. And, Mm-hmm. Our, you know, I just thought my job is just to try it as much as I can to bring the spirit of what I feel is the art ensemble. And I think it's great that he has female instrumentalists in the band, you know. Mm-hmm. 
so yeah, I'm I'm excited for the future just to see, you know, to make to make the music and I like how you know, they said even back when they were performing as a I never you know, I was I never got to see the art ensemble in their original with their original membership, but it's like every night the shows were so different. And that's exciting too. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. it's not static, you know, it's like they're trying to go someplace every night and, and and again as a growing musician that's just great to see. Like no, you even if you're that established, you know, like you're still trying to create a new thing every night. Mm-hmm. Again, it's like I'm. I mean, I'm glad I have my paper and I went to school for this. You know, I have my doctorate or whatever. But the real that knowledge is they're the source. You know what I mean? It's like if you can get it firsthand, you know, or to see it, you know, or or to actually get an opportunity to talk with them. I mean, that's so valuable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I understand that you teach as well, right? Oh no, I used to. I quit that job in eleven. Oh okay. Um, but I used to. Yeah, I used to be a middle school, high school orchestra director. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so now I just, the teaching I do is just, um, uh, oh, just like uh, like, like uh, artist in residence or something like that at a, at a festival or something like that. Oh, okay. Okay. But I, I don't teach, I don't have a regular um, teaching position. Mm-hmm. Just because I've been traveling so much, I just can't. At this right now, my schedule isn't conducive to like teaching regularly. Yeah, yeah. Even though I mean, I'm not against it, but right, it's just you, you know, know, I want to play with the art ensemble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So actually, I'm curious about that aspect of it as well, which I think is, and I, I mean, I feel like this is important in case there are like younger musicians, you know, that would be listening to this is like just the fact that you're making a living with, you know, creative music in this way is sort of important all by itself. And so I'm curious, like how you, you know, how long that's been the case and what the last non-musical job was that you had? Well, something, well, I guess I'll go back to my very first job. I wanted to, I think I was like 14 and I wanted to get a job. And I remember, <laughs> I remember Subway had just come to like my area and I was like, I was like, because I've always been into kind of into healthy eating. So you know how Subway is like supposed to be healthy. So I remember telling my mom, I was like, Star, you know, can I work in Subway? <laughs> you know, and she's like, that is not going to be your first job. And I was like, oh, but it's healthy. And she's like, no, you know, she just was like totally against it. So then I, um, <laughs> so then I was like, you know, I needed, I didn't really need a job. So then I learned about, I don't know, she, I don't know who told me, but somebody told me about Joe's Record Paradise, which is an awesome, awesome record store, um, in Aspen Hill, Maryland. And so I went and worked there and I think I made this pact with myself that like at whatever job I did, it had to be music related. So I worked at a record store and then um, I remember I didn't have enough money to pay for my youth orchestra fees. So I was a girl that I, I've, I've always had that job of setting up the orchestra, like setting up all the chairs on stand. Mm-hmm. So I, I always had some kind of job. I just made this pact with myself that I would just always have a job that was musical related um whether it was playing you know like so I, like i said i worked at a record store then i set up the orchestra then when i went to undergrad i um worked in, i was a music librarian i just always tried to find even when i when i worked to when i went to grad school i had like three jobs i worked at the hot house which was a great venue that that was 
also something that some a place that really opened my ears up to to this kind of music and just all kinds of music. And then that place is still it was still it's still in my mind. It was such a gem because um, it just had so many different people, different walks of life. I mean, it was a really great place to to really get involved in the scene. So I worked there, and then I worked at the Symphony Center Music the store. I did work at a clothing, like any any jobs that I did work that weren't music related. Like I worked at like Urban Outfitters or something. I, I I left within like two months. Like it, <laughs> even though I did retail at Symphony Center, it was symphonies. I don't know. It was just I always just tried to pick jobs where you know I was working around music and some it was something music related. Um, I I got a job with the Chicago Youth Orchestra, and I was again setting up all the chairs and organizing, photocopying the music. Then I got my first teaching job, which I got fired from because it was, I had an afro and a nose ring. Um, and then I got my second teaching job as the, as the middle school, high school orchestra director. So, um, yeah, so I did those jobs. And then I just was playing a lot, like gigging a lot, doing, you know, Nikki's groups and Mike's groups and Dee's groups. They were really active for a period there. Um, and then I was also playing in a rock band, and then I also had gotten, like, a, a seat for a minute in, um, in the Chicago Sinfonietta. So I was gigging a lot. I, that was another thing. That, like, when I got the orchestra, when I got the orchestra teaching job, I was like, I'm still going to gig, and I'm going to still live as if I was gigging. Mm-hmm. So I was definitely, like, trying to save up as much money as I can, and I was trying to pay off all as much student loans I can. Like, I was trying to not get, quote-unquote, comfortable with my job because I was like, this isn't what I want to do. This isn't me. What I really want to do is play. And then, eventually, I had to let some stuff go. Like, the orchestra, I just, the classical thing was cool, but it's just, the vibe there is just so, I don't know, it just was so um, uptight. That's what I mean to say. It was just so uptight. And then, the rock thing was fun but then I don't know it was just very like it was just too DIY for me it's like you know tell that dog to move over you know like <laughs> to sleep on that sofa you know I was like eh I don't know if I want to roll like that even though I'm pretty low maintenance that was just a little too much so I was like well let me concentrate on this jazz thing because I really am getting more filled by that like that was more fulfilling for me mm-hmm. um but I, even even working the job and doing those things was still a lot. And I just remember it was summer 2011, and I was like, man, um, I had just finished my second year getting my doctorate, and I was like, and I was commuting two hours to, um, I took a year off, and then I was the second year I was commuting down to Urbana, and I was just like, man, I'm just, it's just too much, you know, and I'm just like, I have no... It's just hard to have a personal life, even. It was just like school, like working and then school, practicing, trying to keep, you know, trying to do all this stuff. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be crazy. And even though I have this job that I'm basically, quote unquote, tenured, <laughs> I could stay at forever. I was just like, I want to be a jazz musician. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to play. And I'm, I'm being blessed with all these opportunities. Let me honor them by giving them my full attention you know what I mean because mm-hmm. it's like I you know I recognize not every musician that wants to gets to travel it, it gets to play with all these amazing settings and I felt like since I am being afforded these opportunities it was kind of like my duty or something to like honor them and I'm just like I can't even though I liked the kids I was working with 
I was just like, this isn't all who I am. You know, I know that there's someone who would just, like, eat this job up that's like, middle school orchestra is my thing. And I'm like, it's cool. And I liked the arranging I was doing for them and stuff like that, but it wasn't, like, how I feel like, you know, playing in these groups. That's more my thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I took a leap uh, took a leap of faith. Um, I tried to save up. Again, I tried to save up as much money as I could it did run out in November 2012 I was so broke like I did <laughs> buy my house and I was like at the point in jeopardy of losing it I was just like what am I going to do um and then I remember um an- another great supporter uh, in Chicago um Kate Dumbleton she's like man you know have you ever thought about would you would you what she's I forget how she phrased it but she's like would you ever like do a residency outside of Chicago for like three months or something. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was like, I'll try, I'll try it, whatever. So she, I guess she nominated me for this uh, residency and I, luckily I got it in California. And um, that's really when things just kind of opened up because I had been so stressed from like doing all these different situations. I had, my mom was living at me all the time. It was just like, yeah, I was working this job. It was just like, it was just a lot. And I just remember going to California and like, I had space to just like think about just Tamika and like I didn't play I wasn't playing all these bands I could just kind of like focus on like what is it that you want where you want your career to go what is what are you doing like and I took like Tai Chi every day and then I composed and I really I feel like 2012 that fall was like a change in me personally Mm -hmm. um and then and luckily because of that um with the, the stipend that they gave us, I was able to not lose my house. Um, and I had, and I also got roommates so that I could stay there. So it's been very, like, I think, you know, to the young people, I just think um, you really have to be honest about your lifestyle, like your lifestyle choice. Like, if you want to live in a fancy condo in downtown Chicago, <laughs> like, maybe you don't want to play free jazz. <laughs> um you know, you have to really be realistic and honest about what, and I, I shouldn't even say that, like, I'm sure, you know, if you, if you wanted to do that, I'm sure a way could be made. But for me, what's important to me is just, like, having the freedom to do, to play in these different ensembles, to be able to go if I get out. And so I just figure out how to keep my cost of living as low as possible and still be safe and, you know, still have what luxuries I do want but I think you have to really be honest about that for yourself you know um like for me I feel like again I'm pretty low maintenance I don't require a lot like I like eating good food and I like nice shoes but other than that I don't really you know care about like a lot of like material things Mm -hmm. um so so basically what I'm saying is like you know it's, it's not like you get paid a ton I mean, I feel like I get paid a, a ton with my experiences, like, in that way, you know, like, getting to meet these people and to play and go to, to travel and all that stuff. But, um, you know, monetarily, it may not be as much as, like, if I if I had to kept my teaching gig, um, you know, I would be making way more money, I guess, annually. But I'm way happier with what I'm doing because I just realized, like, this is what makes me happy. This is more important. So I just think it's possible to make a living 
But again, you have to just be realistic about your choices. If you want like the latest Lexus or something, like you might want to play more commercial music or you might want to just do something else, you know. But I love the stories that come along with this music. I love the people that I meet that come along with this music. And so it, maybe that's a financial sacrifice at this point, you know, but uh, for me it's worth it because I like what I'm getting out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, that was my interview with Tamika Reed. That's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one.